Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Well, good morning. You heard me mention that Tim is sick this morning. Um, there's been something going around that he apparently got. And so he's unable to preach to us this morning, unfortunately, so pray for him this afternoon as you think of it. Um, and that means we won't be continuing in our Genesis series this morning. Um, we were going to be in Genesis 21, but we're not going to be there um, looking at Abraham's example, but we are going to be talking about something that's related, which is praying in faith, right? Abraham is our father in the faith. We're going to talk this morning about praying in faith and particularly praying according to the will of God. Okay, so... Um, that's kind of a big statement. There are a number of, in college ministry, we're working um, through a Bible study on prayer right now. And there are a number of sort of set conversations that I tend to have with college students. It's a particular phase of life where you deal with particular issues. You know, there's a talk that I have with most people about sexual purity and pornography. There's another talk about um, differentiating from your parents and you're going into adulthood, so you start to see your parents' sins, and you have to be able to use discernment, but still honor your father and mother. And there's another conversation that gets had with college students a lot, which is the will of God. What is the will of God for my life? What does that mean? How, you know, how does that work? What does God want me to do? Where does God want me to go? How do I find God's will? is a source of anxiety, not just for college students, but for all of us as well, as life is just uncertain, as our circumstances are constantly changing and shifting around us. But we know we're supposed to know and understand the will of God, because that's what we're told, and that's what scripture does say. But we have to understand what we mean when we're talking about the will of God. So I said this last week that we're doing a study on prayer and I asked the students this past week uh, a question. I said, what's the difference between hearing and listening? What's the difference between hearing and listening? And you might know the answer to this. Maybe you've had this conversation with your children or with somebody that there's a big difference between just hearing, in other words, having sound waves go into your ears and your eardrums vibrate, and actually listening to what somebody says. Right, And one of the big differences, listening is an active thing that involves interaction, right? You don't just sit there and passively listen, but if you're listening to somebody, a conversation will be happening. They'll say things and you'll respond to things and react to things. And I wanna make clear, very simply, that God listens to our prayers. He's not just in heaven aware of our prayers, acknowledging that our prayers happen. But God does actually listen, and he doesn't listen in the sense that a psychological counselor is gonna sit and listen you, listen to you and just let you sort of vent your feelings and things and give you reassurance. That's not what God is. God listens and responds to our prayers. He listens and responds to our prayers. And this is one of the things that we've, we've talked about in our group is there's a tendency, I think, as we talk about reasons that we don't pray, it's one of the things we've talked about a lot is why don't we pray? And one of the reasons I think is we get this 
uh, one-dimensional or incomplete picture of God's sovereignty that we have this idea that, oh, well, God's going to do what he's going to do, right? He's sovereign. He's got his whole plan, and what's going to happen is going to happen. You know, what's, what's the point in praying? You know, he's got his plan anyways. I can ask him for things, but he's just going to do what he's going to do, right? Well, that's not the picture that Scripture gives to us of our relationship with God in prayer, He listens and he responds to our prayers. Now I say that, but the question is, how can we be sure that God will listen and respond to our prayers? What is the assurance that we have from God's word that he does listen? Because sometimes we pray and what we want it to happen doesn't happen, right? Or at least doesn't happen for a while or it may not happen at all. So how can we be sure that God listens and does respond to our prayers? Very simply, we'll start in Luke 11. Jesus, you know this passage, says, I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. And then he goes further and says, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Now this is the promise from Christ, the Son of God, telling us that God will not just hear our prayers, not just listen to them, but respond to them and grant what we ask for. But we do need to understand a little bit more about Jesus' teaching on prayer and Scripture's teaching on prayer to understand and interpret this rightly. And so when we ask the question, how can we be sure that God will listen and respond to our prayers, One of the big ways we answer that is by saying that God, the Father, is only pleased by requests which are according to his will. Okay, now we're gonna spend this this morning opening that up, what it means to pray according to God's will. So our main passage tonight we're working from is 1 John chapter five. That we'll be looking at together. You can follow along on the screen behind me. And 1 John 5 says this, it says, these things, this is a letter that John was writing, John the Apostle John was writing to uh, the churches. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. So this tells us the key to prayer, to getting our prayers answered, doesn't it? It says, if you, have, if you ask anything according to his will, according to God's will, then he hears you. And not only hears you, but when God hears, it means that your requests are granted. It's that sure. But we have to do some work when we see that, that it says, if we ask anything according to his will, and we have to ask the question, when we say that, read that, what do we mean when we say God's will? Okay, what do we mean when it says, if you pray according to God's will? Because our culture, even evangelical American culture, we have a lot of skewed ideas of what this means, the will of God. You ask somebody what the will of God is and you'll get as many different answers as you get as you ask people, right? So we have to ask the question, what are we talking about when we say God's will? Now scripture uses God's will and talks about it in two main ways, 
okay? When we come across a passage and see the will of God, his will, God's will, it will almost certainly be talking about one of two things. And the first thing is probably the thing that pops first into most of our heads, and that's what some people call God's secret will, Okay, another name for it is God's will of decree, which means what God has declared will happen. God is the Lord of history from massive kingdoms down to the minutest details of our lives. And when we say God's will, we can use it to talk about what God has said is going to happen, what events will play out, what conversations will be had, what details will happen. One place we see this in scripture is Acts chapter one, where Jesus is, has risen from the dead, not yet ascended into heaven. And I thought of this this morning. Last week was Easter, right? When Christ rose from the dead. Now imagine if Christ really had just risen from the dead a week ago, he would still be walking around and meeting with his disciples today, a week later, because for 40 days, right, he was with his disciples. Um, And so during that time when he was meeting with his disciples, he taught them and he spent time with them and they asked him, they were eager, they had some questions to ask him and they said, Christ, Lord, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, you've risen from the dead, is now the time? Are you gonna consummate the kingdom now? And his response to them is kind of unsatisfying. He says, it's not for you to know the times or epochs that the father has set by his own authority. (sighs) that's an example of God's secret will that he has not revealed to us. Sometimes, but it's the exception to his prophets, he does reveal things that will happen, but in general, he does not tell us what's going to happen. When it comes to God's secret will, we just get to look back into the past and say, oh, that was God's will. (laughs) It happened. But we don't get to look the other way into the future. And when we say the will of God, I think this is most often what we're talking about. We wanna know the will of God. We wanna know I'm supposed to do this particular thing or this is going to happen to me. But we have to understand another equally important way that God's word talks about his will. And that is that when we say God's will, I want to look at a passage so that we see this. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. If you're looking for the will of God, this is the passage, okay? Because Paul says, for this is the will of God. He's setting you up. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The will of God surprises us here. It surprises me. I'm expecting you know, some revelation of what's going to happen in the future, some prophecy. But that's not what Paul says. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And he starts to give a list of, this is what you ought to do, and this is what you ought not to do. In other words, laws and commands from God. 
And this is God's will, is his law, his command of what he says to do and says not to do. So think about other places we use this word will, okay? Like someone's last will and testament. This is one of those places where we have a word that we use. We talk about someone's will, which we think of as a piece of paper, but we don't think about where that word actually comes from. Why do we call it a will? It's because this is a testimony of what someone, when they die, their desire of what they want to have happen with the things that they own. They're giving their last commands and their last wishes of what ought to be done with their things. And that is their will. It hasn't happened yet, right? But they're giving their commands in hard copy, laying down for everyone to see, this is my will. And this is what God has given us in his word, is his will. We are his creatures, and he's given us what he desires us to do with his things, with our bodies, with our money, with our hearts. He's given us his will to tell us his desire for how we carry out his will. I got a wonderful, gracious, uh, though uncomfortable, demonstration of the the power of God's will and the will of his command in a conversation I had this past week. Um, I was at Starbucks meeting with a student um, and we were sitting at a table and there was a guy sitting right over here at the table next to us and I'm talking with the student and we had our Bibles open and the guy gets up to go to the bathroom or something and walks by us and says something like, uh, are you afraid of going to hell? And it was just completely out of nowhere. I think I said something like, no, I I know Jesus or something, you know, I don't know that I just felt like I had to spit something out and I don't even know what happened. He went to the bathroom and it was like, that was weird. Um, And then he proceeded to come and sit back down. We didn't really interact with him, but uh, I was talking with the student, guys right over here. And I said, we were talking, ended up talking about homosexuality and I made passing reference to the fact that in Leviticus, God says that homosexuality is an abomination. And so this guy over here looks over and says, do you believe that? And I said, yes, I do. It's it's what it says in God's word. Um, And he said, oh, well, you know, I I have a son who's gay. And so, you know, what what do you mean by that? Some people just like to condemn homosexuals. You know, you you think everyone's, you know, as homosexuals just go into hell. And I said, well, not if they repent and, you know, repent of their sin and trust in God. And that actually surprisingly kind of appeased, seemed to appease him a little bit. Um, But we ended up continuing to talk um, I got the sense that he was some kind of Christian, that he, w- he knew about scripture, he was making reference to scripture, and was talking about the importance of being in God's will, okay? And he started talking about the importance of finding God's will for your life, and, and how important it is that you do these good things and not do certain things, and that you, you find your own personal God's will for you. Um... And on the surface, it was very hard to disagree with, right? It sounded nice. It was, well, you know, we have to do God's will. Yeah, yeah, that's great. But it it was very vague and kind of off in la-la land. It was hard for me to understand what he meant when he said God's will. And so I said, I actually said, I said, well, would you look at a passage for me? I wonder what you think of this passage. Um, And so I had him open up to 1 Thessalonians 4, the passage that I just read to you. 
where it says that the will of God is your sanctification, that you abstain for, from sexual immorality. Um, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And I, he read the passage and he looked up and he said, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And I said, okay, um, which was surprising to me. And, and so I looked at him and I said, well, you said your, your son's a homosexual, right? He said, yeah. And I said, do you think that your son is living in accord with the will of God? And he hemmed and hawed a little bit and said, well, I don't, I don't really know. I, I actually don't know him that well. I only just recently met my son. And I was like, okay. And he said, I actually have 25 children that I don't really know or haven't really lived with, and he's one of my many children. And so the conversation changed at that point um, <laughs> to talking about his son to talking about him, right? Um, and I said, do you think you're living in accord with God's will? And he said, well, yeah, yeah, I think I am. Um, you know, I've probably made mistakes and things, but I'm really glad that my children, that my children exist and that they came into the world. And I said, well, I'm not talking about the existence of your children. That's one thing, but I'm talking about your immorality. You've lived a life of immorality. Um, and the conversation kind of heated up at that point. Um, and was able to finally get him to look at this passage as God's will and even said, you know, God has given his will to us in scripture. I said, you know, it says you shall not commit adultery. That is God's will. Um, and at that point he shifted gears and said, you know, well, how old are you? And I told him how old I was. He said, well, I'm, I'm 52. Maybe when you've lived a few more years, then we can talk and you'll, you'll understand more. And I'm done here. And he just shut down and, and turned off. Um, but God's will is God's commands. And there is this popular idea that kind of came out of liberalism from the late 1800s and the 1900s was we started to doubt the accuracy of the accounts of scripture and started to doubt its authority. And suddenly God's will just became not so much the words that are in here, but as I get nuggets of truth from here and sort of live them out in what I feel is right, that's God's will happening for me. And I just kind of have to sense God's own will for my life. And as long as I do what I feel like he's leading me to do, then I'm inside God's will. This is this very vague, subjective sense of what God's will is. But that's not what scripture tells us is God's will. It says, this is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And it's very clear. There are some things God hasn't revealed to us, but when we're talking about his revealed commands and law, his will is very clear for our lives. And so we have to understand what we mean when we say God's will. But then the question also is, how do we come to understand God's will? Well, very simply, we have to find it in his word. He reveals it. But also, we have to pray. So Paul says this in Colossians chapter one. He's constantly praying for the people that he writes to. If you read Paul's letters, watch for his prayers. He never goes a day without praying for the Thessalonians, Colossians. And this is what he says to the Colossians. He says, for this reason also, 
This is Colossians 1. Since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what will do you think Paul is talking about here? Do you think that they'll, they're wondering about predicting the future or wanting to know the minute details of their life? Is that what the will is he's talking about? Being filled with the knowledge of his will? Well, no, Paul says, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. When Paul says he wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, he wants them to know what is pleasing to God. To know what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, so that they can live righteously and godly in the present age. And so we have to pray too that God would fill us with the knowledge of his will and fill our brothers and sisters with the knowledge of his will. But that happening isn't just a smack hey, now I'm filled with the knowledge of God's will, right? It's a process and we have to grow in it through a process. And this is what Hebrews 5 says about this. Um, The author of Hebrews is writing, he's actually rebuking the Hebrews for being immature in their understanding of spiritual things. And he says, but solid food is for the mature. So he's used the difference between mature and adult being able to eat solid food and an infant having to rely on milk. He says they're like infants and then he says, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Who through practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Paul's talking about our growth in our understanding of the application of God's word. Being able to discern between good and evil takes work. It takes growth and discernment so that we can know and look at things and say, look, that's immorality. Because it might not always be clear, but as we grow in discernment, we're able to look and say, this is good, this is evil. Um, The example I have of this, or one of the ways this bears out is that in different situations, or with two different people in a similar situation, they might receive different counsel depending on what their tendencies are, their sinful tendencies. Um, So an example I have of this is there's a man I know who was in, a young man who was in uh, an inappropriate financial relationship with with a close relative. Um, And so this relative was pretty much largely dependent on him financially in the sense that um, she would ask him for uh, help with supposedly medical expenses and things, but she usually would go and blow her money on gambling, okay? And she had actually stolen money from him before. And what we ended up encouraging this man to do was to actually cut off financial ties with this woman because he wasn't helping her um, by giving her money. Um, it was destructive to her and destructive to him. Now, what he, it seemed like what he was doing was being generous, right? But he was being naive. Um, and it's akin to, you know, telling a drunk that they ought to cut off access to alcohol, right? And so in this situation, our counsel to this man was that you should cut off financial ties. That's actually the best thing for your soul, for her soul, and it will actually bear good fruit, Now, in a different circumstance, there may be someone who is stingy and does not want to provide for their actually needy parents or grandparents or someone who needs help, 
right? And you would counsel that person, you must help. Scripture says you must help. And depending on these different situations, it takes discernment to be able to see the different situations and understand what is good and what is evil. And in both cases, the goal is to honor God and we're keeping in line with what God says to do and not to do, but it takes practice and counsel from wise pastors and elders and others to help us grow in this discernment and the application of God's will to understanding in particular situations, in particular relationships, how I obey this and what that will actually look like. And so to understand God's will, we have to study this, we have to grow in it and practice it, the application of God's word. Now remember, we're asking the question, how can I be sure that God will listen and respond? Bringing some of you back. We got far afield. How can we be sure that God will hear our prayers? Because he tells us if we pray according to his will, he will hear us. So we've talked about what it means to what God's will is and how we can know God's will. But now we do have to ask the question, what does it mean to pray according to God's will? Okay, because that's what 1 John 5 says. It says, if you pray according to his will, you are heard by God and you will have the request that you ask for. So we have to ask the question, what does it mean for me to pray according to God's will? Well, very simply, first of all, before we even talk about the content of what we pray for, in light of the fact that we talked about God's will being his commands and obedience to his commands, When we say we pray according to God's will, it must mean we pray in the way he desires. Okay, so not just for the things that that we're supposed to ask for, but even how we pray ought to be informed by his will and how he says we should pray. You know, so first of all, very simply, we must come confessing our sins in the name of Jesus Christ and pleading with God, the blood of Christ. But also just the manner in which we come is important. So we read from Luke 11 earlier that said, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. Spurgeon says that this asking, this seeking, this knocking is an intensifying of the prayer process. He says that asking is bringing your request before God, telling him your needs and asking him to fulfill them. But with seeking, we see an intensification of asking, that it's pleading with God. It's, it's not just asking for something, but you've got searching for something lost, right? Seeking. And then you've got knocking at the door. And of course, the, the parable or the example illustration that Christ used was the neighbor who comes As a guest arrive at his house in the middle of the night, he goes over to his neighbor's house and is pounding on the door, right? I need some bread. You know, open up. I have a guest. Help me out. And Jesus says, even, you know, though that's annoying, (laughs) eventually the guy who's being asked for bread will come out and be like, fine, take the bread. Just leave me alone. Let me go to sleep. But the point is prayer, that Christ wants us to be like that in prayer, is not satisfied until we've received from God what we're asking for. And so ask yourself about your own prayers. Do you persevere in prayer? Do you ask and seek and knock 
and importune God, is what all the old guys say, is a fancy word for being persistent and not giving up. Do you persevere in prayer or do you pray and immediately get discouraged and not even bother looking for the answer to prayer or not even bother hoping that God might listen? Well, if that's you, why should God listen to you? If you don't think he's going to answer your request, where is your faith? And so when we pray according to God's will, we must come pleading, persistent, persevering in prayer because he hears those who come to him in faith and faith is demonstrated by that work. It's Jacob wrestling with God saying, bless me, I won't let you go until you bless me. But also, praying according to God's will does mean praying for particular things. And it means that we ask God for things that he has promised to us. And now this is a, a truth that many of us know in our heads. We, yeah, I'm supposed to, we've got a pat definition of prayer that says, yeah, I ask God for things that he's promised to me. But I think we have difficulty, if you're like me, I have difficulty with this statement that God commands that we ask him for things he has promised because it almost seems to me like a cop-out from God. You know, as in, oh, sure, just if I ask something that you're already planning on doing, then you'll hear my prayer. Okay, well, that's great. Thanks a lot. And again, there's this creeping notion of God's sovereignty that's like, oh, you know, he's just gonna do what he's gonna do and he's not gonna listen to me anyways. What's the point? But this is wicked, and if we know scripture, we should know that that's, God listens to prayers. Think of Abraham, right? Pleading for the souls of the righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. Pleading with God. And God, there's a conversation going on between God and Abraham, isn't there? That Abraham is asking, God is listening and responding to Abraham's prayer. And God is pleased to answer the prayers of his people. And notice, remember that prayer of Abraham. Um, Abraham is praying according to God's will there because what is he bringing to God? He says, you know, far be it from you, Lord, that you would destroy the righteous with the wicked. Abraham's coming to God. He knows God's character and he brings a piece of God's character back to him and says, look, you know, you are just. Don't destroy the righteous. And God responds and listens because Abraham brought a piece of God's character back to him and God is pleased by that and responds to Abraham's prayer. But we have trouble accepting this bit about that we must pray for things that God has promised because we want prayer to be this magical thing where we can ask for random or silly things to happen just so God can prove to us that he's really there. At least this is me. I remember even from a child, you know, coming across passages like um, that Jesus says, you know, if you have a mustard seed of faith, you'll be able to say to this mountain, move from here to there. And I'm a little child and I think, oh, you know, I've been doubting God, but maybe if he'll do that, if I can say, you know, maple tree, go throw yourself in Lake Monroe. And if it happens, then I'll, I'll trust in God and I'll really know that, that he's who he says he is. But there's something very backwards about this. And what would that silly thing have to do with God's will anyways? 
Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 12. He says, an evil, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. So in other words, Christ is saying, what you have here is sufficient. You know God's works. He has told you, he's revealed his will of what he has accomplished. Why do you need something else? And he goes on to say, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Christ actually gave them a sign. Well, he had given them many signs up to this point when they asked, give us a sign. He'd been healing the sick. He'd been feeding the 5,000. He'd been doing all these things. But he was even kind enough to give them the sign of his own death and resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven. And yet they still did not believe. And so when we ask, when Christ is telling us that we we should ask things in his name, we ought to understand that we are to ask things that are pleasing to God um, and that he has revealed himself to us. And I think when we want some special confirmation beyond what he's already given to us in it wor- his word, it shows that we're not putting our faith in God. We want him to give us more of a reason than Jesus Christ to put our faith in him. We want him to do this thing for us or give us this blessing. It's, it's not quite enough to have the son of God come in human flesh and die on the cross and raise from the dead. That's, that's okay, but I need a little bit more, Lord. That is wicked. Trust in God and what he has revealed to you already. Now asking for things that God has promised and confining our requests to what God has promised is also hard because it means that we have to submit our wills to God's will. And we don't want this to be the case. We want to be able to have our own will and we want God to show his fatherly love to us by submitting his will to our will. And so we are not satisfied with asking for things that he's promised. I wanna come up with something myself that I want and then God can really show that he, love, he loves me because he'll, he'll you know, submit his will to my will. It's like we're bratty children trying to manipulate and demand things from our father so that he can prove that he loves us. You may know children like this. You may have been a child like this yourself. It's an awful thing to see a son or a daughter who demands things from their parents for, in order for the parents to show that they love them. For the child to demand that the parents submit their will to the child's will. We all know what this looks like, I think, and it's a disgusting thing for it to happen when you see it happen. But this is how we are if we come to God demanding that he listen to our will instead of us submitting to his will. And when we read that Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you, we want that to mean that we get to decide what to ask for and we say, hey, 
You know, God just said that he'll do my will just to make me happy. That's what Jesus is saying. Ask and it will be given to you. God's gonna do my will. But that's not what Jesus is trying to teach us. There's a passage in Psalm 37 that says this. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now when we come to this passage sinfully, we think, oh, the desires of my heart. Okay, how do I get the desires of my heart? All I have to do is say that I love God and put on a show of loving him and then I'll get the things that I want. But let's read the passage. It says, delight yourself in the Lord. In other words, make God the desire of your heart. And what happens then? He will give you the desires of your heart. If your delight is in God, he will give you himself. But if you're just trying to use God as a means of acquiring some other earthly or sinful or selfish delight, then you're not delighting yourself in the Lord and you should therefore not expect to receive the desires of your heart from God or anything from God's hand unless you're delighting yourself in him. So we had the example of the manipulative, disobedient child who demands things from his parents, but you've also, I hope, seen the beauty of a son who just loves doing what his daddy tells him to do. And for no other reason than that daddy said to do something, right? That's a glorious thing to see and a godly thing to see in a child is a son who gets a command from his father and does it because he loves his father, right? And that son is not, you know, some controlled, um, you know, dominated robot just doing the will of his father, but you see the joy in the son's face to do the will of his father because his will is tied to his father's will of what his father wants him to do. And this was Jesus Christ. Constantly, especially you read the book of John and he's just saying, I don't do my own will, I do the will of the father. And Christ, his will was so tied to his father's will that the only thing he took joy in was doing his father's will. And he sought after his father and his will was completely submitted to the will of his father. Now I'm working on teaching a particular child of mine right now to completely submit her will and desires to my will and desires. Now I say that and uh, you might think that's because I'm an egomaniac or a monster to say that I want my daughter to completely submit her will and her desires to my will and my desires. Now it's possible that that could be true, (laughs) Um, but it's also possible um, that you would ask a child to do that so that they might learn the joy of submitting to their heavenly father. I tell my daughter someday God might give her children to take care of and teach and lead, which she's trying to do with her brothers and sisters, right? Or her brothers. Um, But right now she must learn complete submission and obedience. And of course, if I'm saying that just for my own desire to control and manipulate my daughter for my own good, then I am an egomaniac and I'm a monster. But if I am being a good father and in submission and obedience to God's desire, 
that I, as a father, teach them what it means to obey, then God is glorified and good fruit is born. It might hit a little closer to home in marriage. So submission of a wife to her husband is easy if she already agrees with what he tells her to do, right? We can think that we're leading well and submitting well when we happen to agree on things. And it's amazing how good we as husbands can get at telling our wives only to do the things that that they already wanted to do anyways. We acquire that skill very well. But the real test of submission, and I hope you have seen this, the real test is when there's a disagreement. Does a husband ever direct his wife in something she is unwilling to do? Which is to say, are there times when she has to submit her will to the will of her husband and in which she does so cheerfully? Now, no one gets off the hook in terms of submission. Everyone must submit their wills to those who are in authority over them. And everyone must submit their wills entirely and unreservedly to God's will. I've been struck lately by, uh, I've been reading the qualifications for elders in Titus 1. And listen to this. It says, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good. A lot of those stick in our minds. We, I think we remember that uh, an elder shouldn't be addicted to much wine, that he shouldn't be pugnacious, which means to fight. He shouldn't be um, belligerent. Uh, he shouldn't be greedy, hospitable. But when you think of the qualifi- qualifications for elders, does it ever quickly pop into your head that he shouldn't be self-willed? I've had to remind myself over and over again that that's in there as I read it again. It strikes me each time that a man must not be self-willed if he is going to shepherd God's flock. And what's it talking about? It's talking about the fact that you don't want a man in leadership who's just concerned about his own will, his own what's happening with his money, what's happening with his family, what's happening with him and bringing his own will to manipulate and control the church, but that, first of all, that he's completely in submission to what God's will says, and that he's willing to submit to those around him, (laughs) to the other elders, to the pastors. And this is crucial, especially in America, where we're all about having our own independent will and being self-determined, that this is a mark of godliness of a man who is in complete submission to God's will. And like Christ, just wants to do the will of his father, whatever that means, even to the point of death. And so it's central to being a Christian, being a child of God, that we submit our wills to him. And this bears out in prayer. And I want to say that the work of prayer, prayer is not easy, because it is the work of learning to submit our wills to God's will. And we learn this from Christ himself. When his soul was in anguish the night before he was going to be crucified, the Son of God, he taught us when he completely submitted his will to his Father's will by praying, not my will, but yours be done. At the greatest point of anguish and trepidation, about to go to the cross to suffer the wrath of his Father, and yet he's still submitting his will 
to the Father. And this is the work of prayer. Christ does this in prayer with his Father, and we have to go in prayer to God to do the work of having him give us submission. Asking him to submit our wills to his will. And it's through prayer that we learn to submit our wills to God's will. And so let's circle back around to 1 John 5. It says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, who obeyed his Father's will perfectly, the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. So, we started by asking the question, how can we be sure that God will hear us? We answered by saying we must pray according to his will. When we talk about the will of God, we're talking about his commands, his desire for what he wants us to do. How do we understand that? We study his word, we practice the application of his word to our life, we submit to others as they help us, and we grow in it through practice. And we align our desires with what God wants and we seek after him himself. And what does it mean to pray according to God's will? It means to come to him humbly and to submit our wills to his will and what we ask for. And if we do that, he will give us whatever we want. If we want what he wants, it's his joy and pleasure to give us everything. And so we must do the hard work of learning what is pleasing to the Lord through prayer and have faith. God will hear you if you go to him humbly. Let's pray. Father, you have been kind to open your ears and listen to us. You have been kind to reveal your will to us so that we know what we ought to desire and ought to want. I pray that you would Cause each of us to grow in the knowledge of your will so that we might keep ourselves from immorality, from cheating and lying to one another, from going after our own ways and our own idols. I pray that you would help us to love one another in this work and encourage each other. Help us to be devoted to prayer and do not turn your ear away when we come to you in prayer, but please incline your ear towards us and hear the requests that we make and respond and grant our requests, we pray. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.